Welcome to the podcast series, The New Student Pharmacist, where we discuss chemistry and pharmacy, as well as leaders in pharmacy careers, community, and chemistry and pharmacy research. We encourage you to support the work we are doing and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by subscribing for free. Note, the views on the podcast represent those of my guest and I. of these episodes not at all for advice or medical suggestions. These are aimed to provide support to peer pharmacists in training in educational and intellectually stimulating ways. Again, these are not at all for medical advice or medical suggestions. Please see your local board and state certified health professional. The views of this podcast represent those of my guests and I. Welcome to General Chemistry 1. My name is Mr. Ferguson, and this is General Chemistry 1. I am passionate and I'm excited. It is a treat for me to be your professor this semester. General Chemistry 1, it provides a basis and a foundation for analytical chemistry, biochemistry, organic chemistry, and physical chemistry. General Chemistry 1, it gives you the skills, tools, and acumen that you need to pursue your future careers. General Chemistry. General Chemistry 1. My name is Mr. Ferguson. I am an adjunct faculty member at the University of Bahamas. Just before we get started, I want to remind everyone, you are not alone. This is an academic community. Remember to get help when needed. Reach out to the university services if needed. Never give up. Keep trying. We are here to help you be ethical intelligent and successful scientists however at the end of the day you must be responsible ethical and hardworking. so a little bit about me i am a value-driven individual i want to make value-driven impact in society using science principles some of my values are respect integrity and excellence I, I expect those values to be exhibited in this class this semester. As I said earlier, I'm a adjunct faculty at the University of Bahamas. Some roles I've served in, I've served as a graduate student. I've served as a bridge fellow, graduate student at Indiana University of Bloomington. I have served as a bridge fellow with one of the largest scientific societies, the American Chemical Society. I have also served as a GEM Fellow with the National GEM Consortium. 
I served as a podcaster for the New Chemist, the co-host of the New Chemist, as well as an author for several books. Lecture attendance is mandatory. At this time, lecture will take place via Zoom. Class assignments will be placed on the online platform. If similar information about the class is lost, for the first instance, we can arrange for another copy. After that, correspond with your classmates. A lot of the information that is provided this semester will be provided electronically. Summaries of lecture notes will be uploaded and provided. My goal is to make this class as engaging and enjoyable and cognitively stimulating as possible. The course textbook is Chemistry the Central Science by Brown, Lemay, Burstein, Murphy, Woodward, and Stoltzfus. Students in this class in at UB North, an electronic version of a chemistry guidebook will be gifted at no cost. It is up to you whether you use it or not. As well as supplementary notes and problem sets will be provided at no cost. Office hours will occur via Zoom. Office hours will occur. Try not to fall behind to make the class for you a more enjoyable experience. Regrading is not the ideal scenario, but if needed, it can occur. The grader and I will discuss any possible regrades and it will be reassessed entirely if our regrade opportunity is granted. Also, a two-page justification of why must be written and emailed to the professor. There will be three exams, each worth 150 points each exam will be 50 multiple choice each worth two points and there'll be five short answers each worth 10 points the dates for the exams are september 21st october 26th and november 23rd this semester only medical absences approved by the university are allowed any other absence will be a zero and you can drop your lowest grade look at the syllabus for the dates Quizzes will be given at the beginning of the week. Each week, they will be released electronically. Um, this starts August 29th. If this changes, I will let you know. And it ends November 21st. These dates are subject to change. Quizzes will be 10 questions, each worth 0.5 points. The points will be added at the end of semester. At the end of the semester, at least 70% on all the quizzes is equivalent to the addition of 1% to your overall grade. That's the equation to calculate what percent will be added to your overall grade. There is UCI OpenCourseWare. These lectures can be found on YouTube. There is MIT OpenCourseWare. Those are available on YouTube as well. There's Khan Academy. I will provide learning casts, the equivalent of a podcast, but it will be specifically for you being our students in my class with the class content in a creative format. The link will be available on a YouTube channel page. Students, when possible, should become familiar with the various withdrawal and drop dates noted by the University of the Bahamas. This is your responsibility. All withdrawals are handled by the registrar. The late date last date rather for an automatic grade of W is determined by the registrar. So 1050 points equals 100% of the class 
There's the equation to calculate your grade. Collaboration and teamwork is allowed on homework. However, for the Google Form with the electronic version of the homework set, a requisite hard copy picture will be mandatory for homework submission. Essentially, when you submit your homework, a hard copy of the written version of your homework is going to be required to be uploaded to submit your homework and for it to be graded. Some of the topics we will talk about this semester. We will talk about wave-particle duality of light. That's just a fancy way to say light exists as a wave and it also exists as particles. And those particles are quantized as photons. We will also talk about atomic spectroscopy and line spectra. So the different types of line spectra. We could go on, we could talk about the Balmer series, the Lyman series, the Paskin series. Um, we can also talk about... Um, different models of atomic spectra with, with the Bohr model and I'm going to show you a nice creative way I came up with you to practice writing your Bohr model structures. We will have a problem solving session and uh, that will be the exam. We will discuss the Bohr model by Niels Bohr and orbital diagrams. We will discuss the structures by Gilbert N. Lewis, molecules and polyatomic ions. We will discuss resonance structures. So those three topics right there, they kind of give you a foundational basis to the Bohr model, Lewis structures, and resonance structures. They give you a basis for understanding chemical reactivity and chemical reactions. Um, we'll discuss that later on. So um, for the for the week of October 10th to the October 14th, we will have problem-solving sessions. On October 10th, there is no class. However, during the week of October 10th to October 14th on the Wednesday of that week there will be an exam so you can use that no class day to catch up on homework relax and prepare for your exam from the weeks uh, for the weeks of October 17th to the 21st on October 24th to the 28th we will discuss thermodynamics we will discuss thermochemical equations explain exothermic and endothermic processes those are some of the things you will discuss We'll also discuss in the, in the ensuing weeks thermochemical equations, Hess's law, Born enthalpies, the Born Arbor cycle, which is basically a, a named description of how ionic compounds form in which they transition or change states. And in the process of them changing states, they are ionized, and those ions combine together to form a crystalline lattice. And then we will have a problem solving session. And exam three and then we will have the final exam so if you feel overwhelmed from just this be encouraged the goal is not to make you feel overwhelmed the goal is to help you to succeed and give you the capacity building experience that you need to be the successful doctor the successful scientist the successful researcher the successful professor successful person that you need to be in this society so we're going to review some concepts at this time some fundamental skills i need you to have grasped so we're going to spend a good portion of this lecture discussing fundamental skills i will give you problems there will be short answers and i will also give you problems which are equations however in this lecture we will discuss the concepts and then in the practice or in the subsequent sessions and problem solving sessions we will discuss how to solve the problems with heuristics and algorithms we will discuss simple ways as to how you can understand what the question is asking 
and how you can solve it. And then we will discuss the wave particle duality. So, the goal of this class is to teach the chemistry content in an engaging manner that is relevant to the Bahamian student and digestible for their understanding. So I want you to understand the concepts, practice their con- problems that are relevant to understanding that concept, learn more nuanced details about the concept, and then practice more complex problems that integrate the detailed and the fundamental understanding. So let me give you an example. Say we were talking about the Bohr model. First, I would give you the workbook that I designed for specifically for this class on the Bohr model. Have you practiced those problems? Understand the Bohr model was basically a description and a representation of how atoms, when we designate their energy levels as quantized states or discrete levels, that the transition of those electrons from one energy level to the other results in the release of a frequency of light and that is characteristic and observed as a specific color. In short, levels are quantized. Those levels provide a a display of light at a specific frequency when those electrons relax. And that's the fundamental concept. More nuanced details will be how does that play out when we try to describe or understand the amount of energy that is released. And that energy is equivalent to a specific frequency proportional rather to a specific frequency. So let's review at this time. So I'm going to walk you through this review. I'm going to walk you through this review. So okay. So everyone, I designed the guidebook with the intention of teaching the content in a creative way. And we're going to walk through this content and we're going to walk through the equations. So as we begin this class, I want you to think about how will college be different from grade school? I want you to stop and think about this. I know for me personally, college required a higher level of engagement, a higher level of time management skills, and a higher level of dedication to my studies. What do you think it requires to be successful in college? Success in college requires a number of factors, and they vary from person to person. However, one thing we know is that success requires you operating with self-discovery. Hold on a second. Let's continue. How well do you expect to do in your first few semesters here? And how do you plan to aim for that success? As a science student and a former science student, because we're all learning this here, as a science student, when I was an undergrad, one of the things that stood out to me was you must schedule your time and you must manage your time well. So the important thing for you to understand here, yes, there are animations, and the animations are placed there to make this 
discussion engaging for you. So the important thing to think about is what is your learning style? How do you learn best? Are you an auditory learner? Are you a visual learner? Do you need to write it out? Do you need to use programs like Quizlet, Kahoot, Anki? All of those things, they are important and you need to know what works best for you. Uh, if you're trying to understand what it entails for a career, there are podcasts you can listen to. There are a variety of things out there. This experience in this class will be what you make of it. I will try to give you the opportunities, the facilities, the resources for you to succeed. However, the work and the onus is on you. You must be dedicated, motivated, and encouraged to work well. So what time management strategies and group studying approaches can you use to ensure learning and academic success? So essentially, do you need to use Google Calendar? Do you need to use Outlook? Do you need to use a hard copy planner? I use both Google Calendar and a hard copy planner. You have to find what works for you and implement that strategy. Um, later on, we will discuss and I will show you a video on strategy before this lecture ends. The importance of strategy. Strategy is more than just planning. It must be strategic. Now, some big ideas that this college chemistry covers, some of which we will discuss in the context of the semester. All matter is composed of atoms and intermolecular forces and bonding explains their properties. Simply put, matter, things like solids, liquid, gases, ice, for example, is a solid, liquid, water, and gas would be water vapor. All of those things are composed of atoms. Those atoms are bonded together, covalently, of course, to form H2O. Within or among those H2O molecules, there are intermolecular forces, and those intermolecular forces are hydrogen bonds. Those hydrogen bonds help us understand the physical and chemical properties of water. It's important for you to understand that. Everything boils down to the compositional units of the matter or the object you are describing. Chemical reactions involve intramolecular and intermolecular changes. Chemical reactions, whether they be double displacement, addition, substitution, um, displacement, single displacement, whatever the type of reaction that's being discussed or displayed, um, chemical reactions involve intramolecular, so we're talking about the bonding, and intermolecular, we're talking about what happens in between those molecules, those changes. So molecular collisions, molecular geometry, and the approach between molecules influences the speed of those reactions. So you also have thermodynamics and kinetics. They provide a lot of insight into physical and chemical changes. So thermodynamics is like one end of the seesaw and kinetics is the other end of the seesaw. They are distinct, yet they coincide at points. Thermodynamics basically explains how heat and disorder plays or functions in chemical reactions. Kinetics explains how fast reactions occur and why they occur fast and what causes them to go fast, whether it be their orientation, their proximity, or their number of collisions. So equilibrium and thermodynamic parameters such as entropy, which is another a 
fancy way to describe this order. Enthalpy, which is basically how you describe the heat energy of a reaction. And Gibbs tree energy, which describes the capacity of the, of the reaction or the molecule to do work of the reaction or to do work. And those ideas, enthalpy, entropy, and Gibbs free energy, provide insight into a reaction's thermodynamic potential, whether it's thermodynamically favorable or not. Another way to say that is whether it's spontaneous or not, or whether it will occur or it's likely to occur or not. It gives us insight into the products that will form, and how fast those products will, off, um, will form. And those parameters also give us insight into how they form. So that's important to understand. So we will discuss in this review session, this is a review session, we will discuss MADA, dimensional analysis, problem solving, and introduction, and we'll introduce the history of some chemistry pioneers. So let's talk about the scientific method. The scientific approach to information consumption and knowledge generation involves the scientific method. So what does that mean? The scientific method is the way scientists do science. Essentially, the way they operate, the way they think, the way they practice. It's if I was to give an analogy, uh, the scientific method is how they operate. This figure below describes or shows an example or a version of how the, the process of thinking occurs for the scientific method. You have your observation. And then from your observation, whether you look at it physically, you look, try to break it down chemically, you look at the hypothesis, which are basically your educated guesses about what is going on. And from there, you run experiments. From those experiments, you gain results. From those experiments, you gain results, and from those results, you gain conclusions. And after you've done that enough, those conclusions lead to a discovery. And discovery goes along and gives you an idea or theoretical explanation as to what is going on. And then we have our physical or scientific law. So, a critical part of nature is energy, which is basically the capacity to do work or to cause change. Those changes can be physical or chemical. Now, let's keep this in mind. Matter is anything that has mass or a definite volume. There are several states of matter, which are solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. The main states we'll discuss in this class are solid, liquid, and gas. Matter goes different types of changes and those changes can be physical or chemical. So a physical change involves changes that do not rearrange the intramolecular bonding arrangement or electron configuration. So what does that mean? When you're dealing with physical changes, we're not changing the bonding, we're not changing the ionic bonding or the covalent bonding. We're not changing how those atoms are connected together. We're not changing how those electrons are configured, are arranged, are distributed in the atom. We're only changing a from the macroscopic view. This is a simple way to put it. From the macroscopic view, we change the state. So, for example, with water, a physical change for water will be melting. So, when the ice goes to water, or when the water goes to a vapor, 
Those are all physical changes. The hydrolysis or the electrolysis of those water molecules, of the atoms in those water molecules, the splitting of those things, that is a chemical change. Simply put, physical properties of substances such as ductility, physical state, appearance, so like color, texture, whether it's rough or smooth, those are the things that change when we're talking about physical changes. A chemical change, on the other hand, is a change that affects the intramolecular bonding arrangements of the chemical properties, such as the electron configuration or the chemical bonding of the substance. So when we talk about electron configuration, we're talking about how the electrons are distributed within the atom or the molecule. We'll discuss those things later. In terms of chemical bonding, we're talking about ionic, which occurs between metals and non-metals, or covalent, which occurs between non-metals, or metallic, which occurs within metals. We're talking about that fundamental level of bonding. So it requires, if you think about it, because those particles require a good bit of energy to be bonded together through these interactions that we call columbic interactions, because of that, we know that it requires a good bit of energy for that to occur. So that requires a specific type of change, and that is chemical changes. So let's also talk about measurements. Measurements are important in science. These values are important because they affect the data's precision, so how close the measured values are to each other, and the data's accuracy, how close are the measured values to the true value. So precision, if you were to think of a dartboard, a dartboard has different ranges. If you hit within the same area, so you, if you hit all of the darts on one location of the dartboard, all of them go in one area of the dartboard, that is precision. If you hit all of them on the bullseye, that is accuracy. So some SI units. The SI units will be um, that are commonly discussed in chemistry are length, which is in the SI unit of meter, time, which is in the SI unit of second, amount of substance, which is in the SI unit of mole, electric current, which is in the SI unit of ampere, temperature, which is in the SI unit of Kelvin, and luminous intensity, which is in the SI unit of candela. It's also important to remember that mass is in the SI unit of kilogram. So, there are significant figures that are important. Significant figures. Some rules to keep in mind. There are four rules I want you to remember in this class. Non-zero digits are always significant. Any zero contained between non-zeros is significant. For example, 203 or 203. The zero in between two and three is significant. Leading zeros are typically not significant. Final zeros or trailing zeros are significant only after the decimal. So these are important rules to remember, significant figures. So in this section we will provide analysis as to how to do dimensional analysis calculations. So if you think back to when you did BGCSE chemistry, there were these calculations that you had to do, they were called stoichiometry, they were discussed under the name or moniker um, 
stoichiometry. So that is a version, a simplified version of dimensional analysis. So the thing that you have to think about, and that should be, uh, that should be spelled chemistry. So excuse that. Um, things you have to think about. You have to look for what are you given? What is in your hand? What is on the paper? What values have you been given to solve this problem? Solve for. What are you aiming for? What value or specific parameter are you aiming for? The other info in the problem that has something that you want details of the problem. Those are things you want to think about. That's step three. The conceptual plan. How will you solve the problem? Solution. What will you do to solve that problem? And then you check it out. You check it with your intuition, your fundamental understanding of the concepts. You're going to check it out with that and you're going to solve the problem. So step one, you look at your given info. Step two, you solve for a specific variable. Um, step three, you look at the other info. You keep the problem in context. Step four, you come up with how you're going to solve it, your conceptual plan. Step five, you give up, you give your solution. Step six, you check out, check out your solution and see if it makes chemical sense. So this is a general idea. You look at the number of objects over one times the related object over one object and design SI unit over the unit. So th this is how you would solve a generally solve um, a metric problem. So let's let's give think of an example. Say for example we want to solve for the length of a group of hydrogen atoms. So in this basic step we use the number of objects given in the problem as the basis for conversion and solutions. That is going to be step one. So the number of atoms in one mole is Avogadro's number 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. Those are the number of atoms in one mole of hydrogen. And then we think of a ratio. So we have the number one mole, we have the number of atoms of the object. So as we said earlier, the number of objects, we know the number of objects. Now we're going to relate it to something over one object. So if we want to solve the length of a group of hydrogen atoms, we look at one mole, 6.02 times 10 to 23rd atoms, times 212 picometers over one atom. And then from there, we discuss or we note how long is that picometer? How long is the picometer? And so um, we know that 10 to the 12 picometers equals one meter. And we calculate it out and we get 1.28 times 10 to the eighth meters. Sorry for the missing unit. We get 1.28 times 10 to the eighth meters. And that's the length of a group of hydrogen atoms if they were all placed in one line together. So, what is a derived unit? So, we just discussed how you solve for metric analysis problems. And I will give you some of those to solve. What is a derived unit? A derived unit is a combination of other units. Examples of derived units are those for force, which is kilogram meter per second squared, which is force is equal to mass times acceleration. So kilogram is a unit for mass, meters per second squared is a unit for acceleration. You multiply those two, you get kilogram times meter over second squared and for momentum momentum is mass times velocity and from that we get that um, the unit for that is kilogram per kilogram meter per second 
So what is that? Now we're going to talk about, we're still discussing foundations. So we're going to now talk about what is an intensive property. An intensive property intensive, independent of the amount of substance. So an intensive property is a property that's independent of the amount of substance. And it involves, an example of that is going to be density. So it's a characteristic property. It doesn't change depending on the amount that you have. It is the same no matter what you and what amount of it you have. An extensive property is a property that does depend. So extend does depend on the amount of substance. An example of that is going to be mass. The mass of substance is dependent on the amount that you have. So, at the still talking about foundations, these are things I need you to understand. This is the language, the jargon, the foundational ideas. I need you to understand for us to do chemistry this semester, regardless of the format. I need you to understand this. What type of substance is a compound? A compound is an example of a pure substance. So, compounds are pure substances. An example of a pure substance is going to be sodium chloride, pure sodium chloride, crystalline sodium chloride. That's a compound made up of two different elements. And that is a pure substance and it is a compound. What type of substance is an element? An element is a pure substance made up of one type of atom. So for example, sodium metal is an element. That's a pure substance. A, a, a sodium metal is an element. So what type of substance is carbon monoxide? I know you've heard of carbon monoxide poison, which is dangerous if you don't have proper facilities. What type of substance is carbon monoxide? Carbon monoxide is also a pure substance as a compound made of carbon and oxygen. What type of property is color? Color is a physical property and does not necessarily require the intramolecular bond breaking to be observed. Although some electronic transitions do result in color changes. And that's where we get the atomic spectral series from. So it's interesting how they interplay. What are the rules for significant figures? So if you look at the animation, we can see that all non-zero zero digits are significant. Interior zeros are significant. Leading zeros are not significant. Trailing zeros at the decimal point are significant. Trailing zeros before decimal point are significant. And an avoid unclear notation such as trailing zeros before an implied decimal point. So let's keep going. What is an example of a game that combines the ideas of precision and accuracy? Darts. Darts is an example of a game that combines the ideas of precision and accuracy. Now let's talk about some more foundational concepts. We're going to talk about conservation laws. 
These are important to understand. These are foundational things that we're reviewing before we get into wave particle duality. These are things I need you to understand and understand well. So rewatch this video if you need to. Rewatch it again. I recommend you do it. At least watch it twice and take detailed notes. Design this in such a way so that it can be integrated. It can be engaging. It can be stimulating. It can be well understood. What are the foundational concepts I need you to know? for this semester. So what is the law of conservation of mass? The law of conservation of mass states that the total mass of a substance in a closed system does not change, where there is neither generation or, cons or consumption in the system. Essentially it says, for mass, mass is not created or destroyed. So what is the law of conservation of energy? Conservation laws which are noted in the animation, they are classical. Conservation laws, they are of the law of conservation of energy. Energy is never created or destroyed. It's only transferred from one form to another. Heat energy to light energy. So keep that in mind. Now let's talk about some key scientists. I need you to know a few people. We gotta know a few people before we really deep into wave particle duality because there's another group of people that I want you to know about. So who are all the scientists that have been presented so far? Why are their contributions so significant to chemistry? So Joseph Prowse is important, I need you to know, and I will give you a worksheet with these people on it. Antoine Lavoisier is important. Um, Joseph Prowse is important. John Dalton is important. Albert Einstein is important. All of these people, let's talk about... Um, Let's talk about, for example, John Dalton, his theory of atomic, his atomic theory was pivotal to understanding, um, understanding mass and understanding key ideas with atomic mass. Even though it had to be refined, his ideas were fundamental, whether it be from the original founder or the original person who described Mahadan's compositional units, John Dalton, it's important. So what is the law of definite proportions? And this is where Joseph Prowse comes in. The law of definite proportions refers to a substance composition. It classically states that specific compounds are always made of the same elements in the same ratio. This is true. H2O is H2O. It has a definite proportion. Two molecules, two atoms rather, of hydrogen with one atom of oxygen. And you see this in the balanced chemical equation. The balanced chemical equation is proof positive that the law of definite proportions is true in many instances, or in all instances, at this level. What is the law of multiple proportions? This is where John Dalton comes in. The law of multiple proportions basically states that two atoms, C and D, when combined together for a compound, the ratio of D to the one compound, in the one compound rather, to the ratio of D and the other compound will be a definite ratio. So for example, let's, start, let's make this more concrete. So law of multiple proportions states basically two atoms. So let's talk about hydrogen and oxygen. So let's think about that. When combined to form a compound water, the ratio of oxygen in compound one and the ratio of oxygen in another compound will be a definite ratio. So for example, ratio of oxygen and water the ratio of oxygen and magnesium oxide would be a definite ratio, it would be one to one. What made Dalton's atomic theory significant? 
2000, as you see on the graphic, some of his ideas which have been refined. Each element is composed of tiny particles called atoms. All atoms of the same element have the same mass. Atoms combine in simple whole number ratios to form compounds. And he said that atoms of one element cannot change into other atoms of another element. We know that that is not the complete story. Number four, the tenant of his storm theory is not the complete story because as we learned later on after John Dalton with um, the Curie family, Marie Curie and her daughter, Irene Jolot Curie, um, we learned that there's this thing called transmutation in which you have one element being converted to another element and that involves radioactivity uh, and radioactive decay. So let's keep, keep the big picture in mind. What made his atomic theory significant? His ideas have been adjusted, but his theory is significant because although some changes were made, his work laid a good foundation for chemistry research at the time and today and understanding chemical reactions. Ladies and gentlemen, this shows the iterative nature of science that we are constantly learning and developing new ideas using a dynamic scientific method. Who is J.J. Thompson? See, we're talking about people now. These are people you need to know about, people you need to meet, who you need to discuss, who you need to talk about with your colleagues. You need to understand what did they do. Who was J.J. Thompson and what were some of his experimental findings on cathode rays? J.J. Thompson, whose work with cathode rays built up to the discovery of the electron. He was an English physicist who made profound discoveries on cathode rays and led to the discovery of the electron. He also proposed the plum pudding model, wherein he hypothesized that negatively charged electrons were small particles held within a positively charged sphere via electrostatics. So he, he um, described proposed the plum pudding model, which is a common uh, idea that you introduced to when you're first discussing periodic properties. And he also, his work led to the discovery of the electron. There's also Robert Millikan, who performed the famous Millikan oil drop experiment, which aided in determining the fundamental charge of a single electron. So who is Marie Curie? Marie Curie is a significant scientist that everyone should know about. She was a female scientist who won two Nobel Prizes and her husband. And her children also won. Mother children also won a Nobel Prize. The Curie family's work on radioactivity led to a lot of progress, achievement, and identification of alpha particles, beta particles, and gamma rays. She won two Nobel Prizes in chemistry. And let's not forget the work of Rutherford, whose nuclear theory was foundational. He described most of the atom's mass and all of the positive charge as posit in the nucleus, or placed, or situated in the nucleus. Who was Ernest Rutherford and what were some components of his nuclear model? So Rutherford was a leading nuclear physicist whose work led to the further development of atomic theory. He served as the director of Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge University. His nuclear theory had ideas around the following. For the atom, most of the mass and all of its positive charge is in the nucleus. Most of the volume of the atom is empty space and the number of electrons and protons is equal to maintain an electrically neutral atom. So what does that mean? Most of the volume of the atom is empty space. 
And it points out that gives you an idea that the massiveness of the atom is situated in the nucleus. The mass the mass of electrons is negligible in this course by convention. However, the mass of the neutrons is one atomic mass unit, and the mass of the protons one atomic mass unit. The number of electrons and protons is equal, typically the case in a stable neutral ground state element, and those are equal. Okay. Was James Chadwick and what did he discover? James Chadwick was a British physicist who observed that the mass of the atom that was unaccounted for was due to the neutrons within the nucleus. His work led to the discovery of neutrons. So was the mass of a proton and what is its charge? Take a few seconds, guess, think about it. Protons have a mass of 1.67 times 10 to the minus 27 kilograms or one atomic mass unit. We can discuss the relationship between kilograms and atomic mass unit in a problem solving session. Remind me. Also, a proton has a relative charge of positive 1. What is the mass of an electron and what is its charge? Electrons have a mass of 9.1 times 10 to the minus 31 kilograms, or 5.5 times 10 to the minus 4 atomic mass units. Also, a electron, excuse that, has a relative charge of minus 1. So, let's just, I want to just narrow in on some quick ideas from this um, animation. You know, Niels Bohr was very important, or he's very important in uh chemistry his idea of atomic spectroscopy involved study of electromagnetic radiation emitted and absorbed by atoms he postulated that each stationary state or orbits are fixed or quantized he understood that electrons have stability and when transitioning between orbits radiation is emitted or absorbed although his model was initially successful it was not a complete explanation that was replaced by a more developed quantum physics theory that addressed the wave-particle duality. And that's very important. That kind of leads us into the idea of wave-particle duality. So what is the mass of, an electro- of a neutron and what is its charge? Just before we transition into wave particle duality, let's just continue going over a few foundational concepts. The mass of a neutron. A neutron has a mass of 1.67 times 10 to the minus 27 kilograms, or one atomic mass unit. Also, a neutron, rather, has a relative charge of zero. What are the symbols for atomic number and atomic mass? The symbol for atomic number is Z, and the symbol for atomic mass is A. So, now, let's discuss, let's discuss uh, the wave particle duality idea. 
So, before we get to a park of duality, I want to introduce you to the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment. Before we get to a particle duality, I want to introduce you to that, and then we'll discuss a particle duality. But actually, before we get to uh, showing you the images and describing it to you in the format we were just discussing it, I'd like to show you a reference text that you can use as you do your studies. So this is chemistry Libretex, and this is a very good resource, students. Chemistry Libretex provides you with a variety of different textbooks and resources that you can use to empower yourself to learn. So this is the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, and it basically gives you an idea as to the quantum strangeness, or the, the idea that quantum mechanical behavior is strange. Um, it, it introduces the idea that um, things that, that equal probability of events occurring but under observation one is definite or one is more discreet one is discreetly known under observation really known and observed so um, let's go back to the PowerPoint now I want you to watch this video and I'm going to turn my camera off and allow you to watch the video and then we will continue with the lecture after the two videos. Brussels and he came here and was admitted on that day as a in November the 9th 1933 the great Austrian physicist Erwin Schrodinger came to this room this office where I work the office of the president of Magdalen College. Schrödinger had been at the Solvay conference in Brussels, and he came here and was admitted on that day as a fellow of Magdalen College, using Latin phrases that we use to the present day. After the ceremony in this room, the phone rang, and it was from the Times of London, and the. Times of London said that Schrodinger had just been awarded the Nobel Prize. So he was heard he'd won the Nobel Prize in this room. And next day, in the Times and the Telegraph newspapers, it stated that Schrodinger of Oxford University had won the Nobel Prize, even though he'd actually been employed before at the University of Berlin. What did Schrodinger win the Nobel Prize for? Well, it was for a paper he wrote in 1926 
when he introduced his famous Schrodinger equation. Up to that time, um, the theory for explaining the energy of electrons in atoms had really been due to the famous physicist Niels Bohr, who'd come up with a theory for explaining the spectrum of the hydrogen atom, the electronic spectrum of the hydrogen atom, and fitting the energy levels with his own formulae. But Bohr's theory didn't work very well at all for other atoms or even for molecules. It didn't seem to be a general one. What Schrodinger did is he came up with a general equation that worked for the hydrogen atom and, and worked for predicting not just the energy levels of the hydrogen atom, but also like the intensities of the spectral lines, whether there's the lines in the spectrum are intense or not. He could predict that intensity, and that was new. Not even his collaborators or his, the people who were competing with him, like Heisenberg, knew how to do that, and Schrodinger did it with his equation. And then Schrodinger, in the same year, realized that he could apply his equation not just to the electronic energy levels of the hydrogen atom, but to other problems like the vibration of a harmonic oscillator, like to the rotation of a diatomic molecule. The same equation could be applied and gave the results that agreed with experiment for those sorts of problems. And then Schrodinger realized his equation could also be adapted not just for simple processes, but for processes that depend on time. So in fact, there are two Schrodinger's equations, what's called the time-independent equation and the time-dependent equation. And, but why the equation became so significant is that suddenly many scientists around the world realized that not only did it work for the hydrogen atom, it worked for all atoms and all molecules in principle. And that means it had remarkable applications to nearly everything you can see. Depends on atoms and molecules. And Schrodinger's equation can be used to calculate all their properties. And if you solve his equation very accurately, you get essentially the right answer. So it was a very powerful theory that came out of Schrodinger's great work in 1926 for all atoms and molecules. Now, the problem is, though, he, his equation was quite complicated mathematically and very difficult to solve for anything more complicated than the hydrogen atom. Even for the helium atom, it involved quite a lot of difficult integration and differentiation and so on. And so it didn't really change science so much in the very early days. But where the big change came with Schrodinger's equation was when computers came along. It was then possible to use computers to solve his equation and do that really accurately as time has gone on more and more. And that means Schrodinger's equation can be applied to more and more complicated systems, atoms, even now to, even to solids, materials, and also to problems of biological importance. You can do calculations with Schrodinger's equation, for example, on proteins, on enzymes, on DNA, and so on. Uh, 
And so it's become in the modern world an extremely powerful theory. It's the theory that underlies the whole of chemistry, molecular biology, material science, understanding the properties of materials. You can do calculations with Schrodinger's equation and many people do that. Even in geology, you can calculate the temperature at the center of the earth using variants of Schrodinger's equation. And so in the, in the 21st century, it's become really almost the essential tool for doing simulations on atoms and molecules. The other method before Schrodinger was developed by Isaac Newton, Newton's laws. And you could simulate atoms and molecules using, uh, using Newton's laws, but those don't include crucially quantum mechanical effects such as tunneling, such as probability. Uh, they don't, Newton's laws just don't work for atoms and molecules, but Schrodinger's equation does. So Schrodinger came here in 1933, and he came to work here in Oxford. Uh, he was a fellow in my college. He lectured at the University uh, of Oxford on the quantum theory, but he wasn't very happy here. He had an appointment which was almost like a postdoctoral assistant. After being a top professor in the University of Berlin, he had an appointment that was just renewed every year, funded by ICI, uh, the, the chemical company. So he wasn't very happy. And he was here just for three years and he missed his great friends in Berlin. He was, a, he was very friendly with Max Planck, who'd, who, who, the person who discovered quantum theory. He was very friendly with Einstein, who was also in Berlin in the 20s. He missed his friends. And in the end, he was unhappy here. And after three years, he decided to move back to his home country of Austria, where he was he was uh, given an appointment at the University of Graz in Austria and also another appointment at the University of Vienna. And that's where Schrodinger went. He'd left Berlin in 1933 because he wasn't very happy with the politics that was going on in Germany at the time. Science and politics in those days really intermixed. Uh, he didn't like what the Nazis were doing. So he came to Oxford. But then he made the big mistake of going to Austria and he didn't realize that there were going to be problems in Austria because Hitler's troops marched in in 1938 and Schrodinger had to escape from Austria. So now we will continue with the lecture. Look at video two and then we'll continue with the lecture. Austrian physicist Erwin Schrödinger is one of the founders of quantum mechanics, but he's most famous for something he never actually did a thought experiment involving a cat. He imagined taking a cat and placing it in a sealed box with a device that had a 50% chance of killing the cat in the next hour. At the end of that hour, he asked, 
what is the state of the cat? Common sense suggests that the cat is either alive or dead, but Schrodinger pointed out that according to quantum physics, at the instant before the box is opened, the cat is equal parts alive and dead at the same time. It's only when the box is opened that we see a single definite state. Until then, the cat is a blur of probability, half one thing and half the other. This seems absurd, which was Schrodinger's point. He found quantum physics so philosophically disturbing that he abandoned the theory he had helped make and turned to writing about biology. As absurd as it may seem, though, Schrodinger's cat is very real. In fact, it's essential. If it weren't possible for quantum objects to be in two states at once, the computer you're using to watch this couldn't exist. The quantum phenomenon of superposition is a consequence of the dual particle and wave nature of everything. In order for an object to have a wavelength, it must extend over some region of space, which means it occupies many positions at the same time. The wavelength of an object limited to a small region of space can't be perfectly defined, though, so it exists in many different wavelengths at the same time. We don't see these wave properties for everyday objects because the wavelength decreases as the momentum increases, and a cat is relatively big and heavy. If we took a single atom and blew it up to the size of the solar system, the wavelength of a cat running from a physicist would be as small as an atom within that solar system. That's far too small to detect, so we'll never see wave behavior from a cat. A tiny particle like an electron, though, can show dramatic evidence of its dual nature. If we shoot electrons, one at a time, at a set of two narrow slits cut in a barrier, each electron on the far side is detected at a single place at a specific instant, like a particle. But if you repeat this experiment many times, keeping track of all the individual detections, you'll see them trace out a pattern that's characteristic of wave behavior. And this is what's referred to as the Young Split Experiment. We will get to that later on in the semester. This is pointing to and hinting to one of the big ideas that we're going to discuss next lecture, which is wave-particle duality. A set of stripes, regions with many electrons separated by regions where there are none at all. Block one of the slits and the stripes go away. This shows that the pattern is a result of each electron going through both slits at the same time. A single electron isn't choosing to go left or right, but left and right simultaneously. This superposition of states also leads to modern technology. An electron near the nucleus of an atom exists in a spread out wave-like orbit. Bring two atoms close together, and the electrons don't need to choose just one atom, but are shared between them. This is how some chemical bonds form. An electron in a molecule isn't on just atom A or atom B, but A plus B. As you add more atoms, the electrons spread out more, shared but And we account for this. This basically is describing what we describe as probability distribution, which basically is a fancy way of saying electrons exist over a, over a cloud, over a region of space, in not a wide specific position. And this also hints at the idea of uncertainty, Heisenberg uncertainty, which basically describes that you cannot know with the same degree of accuracy the momentum or the position and the momentum of an electron at a specific point in time with the same level of accuracy. Between vast numbers of atoms at the same time, the electrons in a solid 
aren't bound to a particular atom, but shared among all of them, extending over a large range of space. This gigantic superposition of states determines the ways electrons move through the material, whether it's a conductor, or an insulator, or a semiconductor. Understanding how electrons are shared among atoms allows us to precisely control the properties of semiconductor materials like silicon. Combining different semiconductors in the right way allows us to make transistors on a tiny scale, millions on a single computer chip. Those chips and their spread out electrons power the computer you're using to watch this video. An old joke says that the internet exists to allow the sharing of cat videos. At a very deep level though, the internet owes its existence to an Austrian physicist and his imaginary cat. So this, ladies and gentlemen, this is a description of the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment. We will discuss this um, before the lecture ends. However, just uh, make on a quick note, feel free to go to YouTube and get more of these TED videos. If you find a video that you think is beneficial to the class, you can send me an email with the link and I will, if it's an educational appropriate video, educationally and age appropriate video, I will look at it and determine whether it's appropriate for the class discussion at that time. So let's go back to the lecture. Just before we, just before we, just before we conclude, I want to discuss Strange's cat thought experiment, and then we will conclude this lecture for today. Now, just in case you didn't get it the first time, I want to explain it to you from the animations I've designed for this class. So, with this, we have Strange's cat thought experiment. In the thought experiment, you, you put a cat in a steel chamber for an experiment, and this whole scenario is just an imagination, or an imaginary experiment. In the chamber, there is radioactive material, and a mechanism that upon emission of an energetic particle by one of the radioactive atoms, a hammer breaks a flask of poison and results in a dead cat. Yeah, this is amazing. If the, if the chamber is closed, and you do not observe what is going on, there is equal probability that both the cat is dead and the cat is alive by virtue of the system being observed. So let's make this, let's behaminize this thought experiment. So let's begin. Imagine there was an oil and beach spill by a pond in Nagua. The area is enclosed by a mine your business fence, so you must enter the area to observe what occurs. If the flamingo in the area drinks from the pond, the flamingo, the flamingo will die in the area. If you are not around to observe what occurs in that pond area, and the pond area is enclosed, the flamingo has equal probability of being dead and being alive by virtue of the fact that the system is not observed. So what does this point to? What Don't get lost in the details, but what does this point to? This point at quantum mechanical behavior and uniqueness and the strange nature of it. It also hints at how quantum mechanical behavior does not exactly transfer for an understanding of 
macroscopic behavior. There is uncertainty and indeterminacy. Yes, life of electrons is strange. And as we conclude, I want to remind you, many of these scientists met at the specific conference called the Solvay Conference, where all of the physicists meet. And if you look at the picture, there's a characteristic picture of many of the scientists um, in which they're in this one photograph of Einstein, Heisenberg, all the others. And that was at the Solvay Conference. Next lecture, we will discuss um, the wave particle duality and other scientists. Once again, thank you again. I'm excited to be teaching this semester. I hope we're able to accomplish a lot, learn a lot. Remember, I expect you to be hardworking, ethical, and responsible. Remember, you are not alone. We are in this together. This is an academic community. However, you are responsible to be ethical, hardworking, and a good potential scientist. Be encouraged, be inspired, and see you next time for General Chemistry 1 Lecture. Good morning, students. It is so good to have you in General Chemistry 1 again. We are doing the second lecture. This is going to be a continuation of the previous lecture as well as in the subsequent lecture. We will discuss a little bit of BGCSE content to just encapsulate and fully complete the review so we can move forward. Um, so... Uh, let's be let's continue on so we already discussed the syllabi we have already discussed the topics that we're going to deal with this semester so I'll just introduce this problem we will come back to this at the end of the class at the end of this presentation a thief uses a can of sand we're looking at problem 113 a thief uses a can of sand to replace a solid gold cylinder that sits on a weight-sensitive alarmed pedestal. 
The can of sand and the gold cylinder have exactly the same dimensions. So if we look at this, they give us the dimensions. This is an example of dimensional analysis if you're guessing or figuring out what we're about to do. Dimensional analysis in terms of length. So length is 22 centimeters, radius is 3.8 centimeters. Calculate the mass of each cylinder. Ignore the mass of the can itself. So we're looking at the mass of the cylinder, given that we have the density of the gold and we have the density of the sand. Then they also ask this question, did the thief set off the alarm? Explain. So let's read this problem one more time and then we'll come back to it at the end of this presentation. A thief uses a can of sand to replace a solid gold cylinder that sits on a weight-sensitive alarm pedestal. The can of sand and the gold cylinder have exactly the same dimensions. Length is 22 centimeters, radius is 3.8 centimeters. Calculate the mass of each cylinder. Ignore the mass of the can itself. Density of gold is 9.3 grams per cubic centimeter. Density of sand is 3.00 grams per cubic centimeters. Did the thief set off the alarm? Explain. So just keep that problem in your mind. You could let that loom around in your mind and let's begin the lecture for today. Okay. So what is chemistry? We discussed this earlier. Chemistry is basically the science of substantial change. And you look at those change in terms of different units, the compositional units, whether it be atoms, electrons, quarks, whatever the case may be. We look at the change of uh, change of the substance in its terms of its compositional units or in terms of the macroscopic object itself. What is matter? Matter is anything that has mass and takes up space or has a definite volume. Um, what are the properties of matter? Matter's properties, they depend on the physical state of that matter that we're looking at, whether it be solid, liquid, gas, or plasma. What are some units of measurement? Some units of measurement are SI units, of course, and they could be ranged from length to Celsius, depending on what you're looking at. What is dimensional analysis? It's a way we do calculations. So, and I've already discussed these things. So we've discussed all of these things in lecture already. Atomic theory of matter refers to John Dalton's atomic theory. If you want more, want more information about that, you feel free to look back in your textbook or you listen to the lecture. Um, we'll discuss a little bit of that uh, later on. Um, discovery of atomic structure. The big players who were in that or who functioned in that were J.J. Thompson. He gives an idea of the electron. And as Rutherford told us all of the charges posit and all the positive charges posit in the nucleus. And also, we had Ernest Rutherford, J.J. Thompson, and James Chadwick who gives an idea of his work led to the discovery of the proton. Now, the modern view of atomic structure came from players such as Bohr, Bohr, who and his work was further, uh, his work was further extended. Or it, it, when he was like the first relay runner, if you were to think of this as a race, Bohr. And there were other scientists who came behind and gave us further insight into atomic structure, um, including those who I just previously mentioned. Atomic weights. Now we get these things, uh, get these values from the periodic table. Um, atomic weights, uh, we get that information from the periodic table. The periodic table, it's a system of elements or a group of elements arranged based on the atomic numbers. And we get an understanding of that or we, we understand what the PR table is saying 
um, through the use of looking at the atomic numbers, looking at the math numbers, being, knowing which group is which. Um, so, for example, knowing which group is which, there we go, you get it. And we look at that in the next slide. Molecules and molecular compounds. So, this is something I nuance I want to make sure I explain well. A molecule is anything that has more than one atom. A substance has more than one atom. A compound is different from a molecule or it's a type of molecule in that you have two atoms but they're different. Molecules, you just have two atoms, so more than one atom. Compound, you have more than one atom and those atoms are different. So that's different, remember that. Ions and ionic compounds. So ions, you can range from cations to anions. Cations have lost an electron or several electrons and have a positive charge. Ionic compounds, for example, sodium chloride salt is made up of, if you look at the Born Arbor process in which you form those things, you have the formation of sodium cations and chloride anions coming together to form the crystalline lattice. So an ionic compound, an example of that is sodium chloride. The naming of those ionic compounds, it depends on the type of, of compound you have, if it's binary. So if you have two things together, two types of atoms together, two different atoms together, if you have two things together, if you have sodium and if you have chloride, um, sodium cation and chloride uh, anion, those things coming together, that's going to be a binary compound. And typically when we're writing binary compounds, we write the name of the element that is to the left or to most to the left or the alkali, the metal basically, the thing that has the most metallic character, we write that as first. Are the first thing so sodium will go first and then chloride we write chlor c l c h l o r and then the suffix ide comes from the fact that it's an ion so that's sodium chloride and it's a binary ionic compound okay simple organic compound naming um those come into play depending on the types of uh number of carbon atoms that you have so let's just do a quick survey of the periodic table. So over here we have our alkali metals, alkali earth metals. We have our transition metals here. Then we also have uh, metalloids, bicycles, antipo, um, boron, silicon, germanium, arsenic, antimony, tellurium, polonium. We have uh, aluminum. These are group three. We have carbon, all of the big players. We have our halogens. And then we also have our noble gases. So key, th key things to keep in mind, the group number gives us an idea of the valency. So the group number gives us an idea, especially for main group elements, groups one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And ideal situations, those group numbers give us the idea of the valency. Noble gases, it just tells us it has a complete octet. So they're extremely stable in their ground state. So, Group one will typically have a positive charge or they will form cations with a plus one positive charge. For the group two elements will form a cation with a plus two positive charge. Group three, for example, aluminum forms a cation with a plus three. Silicon has various valencies, germanium, tin could be two plus or four plus. Um, so four, is, but for this is consistent with the idea that they have the capacity to form uh, or to have the valency of four. Nitrogen, now as we go 
from group five onward, these atoms or these elements are electronegative. And for example, with nitrogen, nitrogen forms a anion N3 minus. Um, so we went from the things that were donating or giving away the electrons, groups one through four, basically, to those that are accepting electrons. So nitrogen is accepting electrons that typically forms N3 minus. Um, oxygen accepts two electrons, O2 minus. Fluorine accepts one electron, F minus. And that typically is consistent in throughout the group. So that's what the group numbers tell us. Now, the, the period numbers tell us the number of electron shells. And this, this coincides well with the Bohr model as we draw those models out. Um, as well as, there's some things for you to note. Let me get my annotate, my annotating option. This right here, this right here is known as the S block. This right here is known as the P block. This right here is known as the D block. And this right here is known as the F block. So I'm just exposing you to that content now so that you're familiar with it before we go into it in depth. Those letters, uh, they come from quantum chemistry and they give us an idea of the, how things, how the, how the electrons are distributed typically within the atom. So they just give us an idea of that. And I, that's all I'll say about that for now. Now the F block, we have our lanthanides and actinide series. And those, uh, those we just, you just just be aware of them for now. Let me erase this. Um, let me see. Let me erase this. There we go. Okay. So common cations. These are common cations to so think about. Hydrogen typically forms a positive one. Cation is consistent with what we see in the periodic table. So, yeah. Lithium, sodium, potassium, cesium, and then silver form plus one cations. Magnesium, calcium, strontium, barium, zinc, cadmium form two plus. Aluminum forms three plus. Ammonium forms a plus one. Now we're talking right now. Ammonium is a compound. It has two different elements, two different atoms that come from one from nitrogen, one from hydrogen. Actually, one from nitrogen and four from hydrogen. But at the end of the day, it's made up of two different elements, nitrogen and hydrogen. So copper plus one. Cobalt, two plus. Copper, two plus. Copper can have... Uh, copper is a little different because when you look at our transition metals, these ones are special. Copper is special. Um, copper is special. Chromium is special. Manganese is special. Iron is special. Because they have various valencies. So uh, if you're familiar with what you did in BCSE chemistry, or earlier chemistry in which you would discuss something as ferrous hydroxide or ferric hydroxide, ferrous plus one, ferric plus two. So those things you want to keep in mind. Those things you want to keep in mind. Copper, cuprous, one, cupric, two. Just want to keep those things in mind. Okay, um, so you have your Mercurius. These are just classic examples of what I'm saying. It's important to be well versed in this language. So as we progress throughout the semester, you're aware of what I'm talking about.
So as we continue on, we see that we have hydrides. Yes, in this case, you have a hydrogen that has a negative charge. That's just an example of how things are not set in stone, how hydrides form. You typically see hydrides forming or hydrides being released when you have a basic reaction um, or some type of uh, nucleophile. So fluorides, chlorides, bromide, iodide, all of those anions, they gained an electron, gained electron density. Um, oxides, peroxides, sulfides, all of those, all of these gained two electrons. Nitride, this is consistent with what I said, gained two electrons. Acetate, chlorate, perchlorate. Now these right here, chlorate, perchlorate, nitrate, and permanganate. These are an example of what we call polyatomic anions. If you listen to the name poly, more than one, atomic, more than one, atom, ions, and that's what these are. Same thing with carbonate, chromate, dichromate, sulfate, phosphate. All of these, from this chlorate to phosphate, all of these are an example of polyatomic anions. Okay, so we discussed the naming of those things already. So, these things we have discussed, this, the postulates of Dalton's atomic theory, we have discussed that already. Key experiments, we discussed that. To, to describe the structure of the atom, we discussed that. The electric charge, we discussed that. Um, the chemical symbols, subatomic composition, that's a fundamental concept you will discuss. Atomic weights, you'll discuss that. Describe how elements are organized. These are all key still key skills that your book requires you to know. So if you look in the textbook that I recommended that you buy, that's a required textbook for this class. I sent you a link of in the email. These are skills that you will see. Distinguish between molecular and ionic substances in terms of their composition. We've done that. Um, distinguish between empirical formulas and molecular formulas. So empirical formulas, this is something we will discuss. Empirical formulas is the simplest representation of a chemical formula. Molecular formulas is just a general representation or the representation that you first get. Empirical is the simplest form of the chemical formula. Um, describe how molecular formulas and structural formulas are used to represent the compositions of molecules. Um, Structural formulas show you the shape, give you an idea of the um, molecular geometry. Molecular formulas just give you an idea of what elements it's made up of. Explain how ions are formed by the gain or loss of electrons and be able to use the periodic table to predict the charges of ions. Explain that already. All these things we will get to or we have already discussed. Now, balancing chemical equations. Now, this is a fundamental idea. I need you to go back and review that. If you don't remember how to balance chemical equations, I need you to go back and review that. That's going to be very important when we start discussing thermochemistry. Balancing chemical equations means you have the same number of elements on both sides of the arrow. Same number of element A and same number of element A on the reactant side. Same number of element, same number of element A on the product side. And what I mean by same number, same moles. Same stoichiometric coefficient. Same thing on the reactant side and same thing on the product side. It's consistent. If you don't remember it, go back and review it. Calculate molecular weights that comes when you do your periodic table. Also, you can calculate molecular weights from percentage of um, relative atomic mass. You can percent you can calculate that from abundances and things like that. 
They'll convert grams to moles, moles to grams. That's stoichiometry. We've reviewed dimensional analysis. Go back and review the BGCSC stoichiometry things if you don't remember those. Um, Avogadro's number. And percent yield. Um, so I'll just show you a quick example of how to do percent yield. Percent yield is done by your actual yield over your theoretical yield times a hundred over one. Actual yield over theoretical yield times 100 over 1. Now, your actual yield is the value that you get or you obtain in your experiment. The theoretical yield is the value that you calculate using dimensional analysis from the value, from the, the value uh, or the number of element, the number of moles of the element that is the limiting reagent. Let me draw that back. So, you have, you have in your reaction a element or a molecule or a compound that will be consumed first, that will we'll run out of that one first. And that limits the reaction because it determines how much product you can make. So when you determine which element or which molecule or which compound is the limiting reagent, you use that value of that element and you calculate how much product you have as possible from the reaction. And that is your theoretical yield. In theory, that's what you should get. Okay. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay. Okay, recognize compounds as acids or bases. Okay, metastasis, redox. Okay, so I'm gonna give some explanations for these things. We will discuss these. We will discuss more of this in general chemistry too. But recognize compounds as acids or bases. The acids and bases typically, the typical in the Bronsted Lorry definition of acids and bases, an acid is something that releases hydrogen ions in solution, has a low pH. A base is something that um, that basically. Uh, accepts hydrogen ions, hydrogen positive cations. And um, actually another way to put this is a base is something that accepts protons or accepts hydrogen ions. Um, strong, weak or non-electrolytes. Strong acids completely ionized in solution. Weak acids partially ionized in solution. Non-electrolytes rarely or seldom ionized in solution. Recognize reactions as acid base precipitation metathesis or synthesis um, or redox. Acid base, you have to know whether you have an acid and a base in the reaction. Precipitation, you have stuff with two aqueous reagents and you end up with a solid. Metathesis, that's a little bit advanced for this level, but the form of synthesis uh, that's involved with transition metals. Um, Redox, you have reduction and oxidation occurring at the same time. 
um, be able to calculate moles or grams of substances in solution using molarity. That is a BGCSE skill. Go back and review it if you don't remember it. Understand how to carry out a dilution. That's something you'll learn in lab. Understand how to perform and interpret the results of a dilatation. That's something you'll learn in lab. So we discussed this already and I showed you this video in the previous lecture. So let's go through this problem now. So we discussed, I introduced this problem to you. Let's read it again. A thief uses a can of sand to replace a solid gold cylinder that sits on a weight sensitive alarmed pedestal. The can of sand and the gold cylinder have exactly the same dimensions. Length 22 centimeters and radius 3.8 centimeters. Calculate the mass of each cylinder, ignore the mass of the can itself. Density of gold is 19.3 grams per cubic centimeter. Density of sand is 3.00 grams per cubic centimeter. Did the thief set off the alarm? Explain. So let's look. What are we given? We are given that the cylinder has dimensions, length 22 centimeters, radius is 3.8 centimeters. We are also given that the density of gold is 19.3 grams per cubic centimeter and the density of sand is 3.00 grams per cubic centimeter. What are we solving for? See, this is the same heuristic that I gave you earlier. Given solve for conceptual plan solution, check and see if it makes conceptual or, or chemical sense. So what are we solving for? We're solving for the mass of the gold, given the length, the radius, density of the gold. Given Technically, we're given the length and radius of the cylinder and density of the gold. And the mass of the sand, given the density of the sand. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at length and radius and we're going to convert that to volume. Then we're going to look at density and volume and convert that to mass. Volume is equal to length times pi times r, or radius squared. Density is equal to mass over volume. So the volume of the gold is equal to the volume of the sand. That's the assumption that we're making in this equation, in this solution process, in solving this problem. And that's going to be 22 centimeters, which is the length, times pi, 3.14, times the radius, 3.8 centimeters squared. That's going to be equal to 998.0212 cubic centimeters. And density is equal to mass over volume. So we rearrange the formula for density. And we get that mass is equal to density times volume. So we just solve for the volume. 998.0212 cubic centimeters. And then we multiply that volume by the density of gold. 19.3 grams per cubic centimeter. And then we get 1.926181 times 10 to the 4 grams. Or we do it to two sig figs, two significant figures, 1.9 times 10 to the 4 grams. The units are correct. The magnitude of the answer seems correct, considering the value of the density is approximately 20 grams per cubic centimeters. Two sig figs, two significant figures are allowed to reflect significant figures in 22 cubic centimeters and 3.8 cubic centimeters. Typically, we truncate the non-significant digits because the first non-significant digit is a 2. So given the values that we're given, all of our values have 2 sig figs. Or we, we typically, actually that's 3. But all of we typically give our answer uh, according to the value that has the lowest number of significant figures. So if we look at the values, and one of them has 2 sig figs, 3 sig figs, and then 2 sig figs. So we give our value 2 sig figs because of that. Okay, um, now let's look at the mass of the sand. We have the volume now. Now we multiply it by the density. 
We did the same thing we did to determine the mass of gold. We do determine the mass of the sun. So 3.00 grams per cubic centimeter times 998.0212 cubic centimeters equals 2.99406 times 10 to the 3 grams. And that's equal to 3.0 times 10 to the 3 grams. The units are correct. The magnitude of the answer seems correct. Considering the value of the density is 3 grams per cubic centimeter. This number is much lower than the gold mass. Two significant figures are allowed to reflect the significant figures in 22 and 3.8, which is exactly what I said. Round the last digit up because the first non-significant digit is a 9. So comparing the two values, now 1.9 times 10 to the 4 and 3.0 times 10 to the 3, shows a difference in rate of almost a factor of 10. This difference should be enough to trip up the alarm and alert the authorities to the presence of the thief. So we, from that, from these calculations, we could directly reason out or rationalize um, whether the thief set off the alarm. Power of chemistry. Keep that in mind. All the best this semester we ahead to help you grow and build intellectual capacity. So let's keep going. Let's keep going. So I'm going to go through. I'm going to give you. I'm going to help you out. And I'm going to go through some BGCSE chemistry concepts. I'm going to go through, uh, I, I went through the curriculum and I designed another uh, resource for you, um, resource that can be helpful for you. And we're going to go through this. Okay. Okay. You wait for more. There we go. So we discussed what chemistry is. It's a science's change that can occur in the context and on the scale of substantial change of quarks, subatomic particles, or atoms. Now we just going. This is a recap of BGCSE chemistry. I want you to be aware of what's going on in the class. So I'm going to give you give you a little bit of review of BGCSE chemistry during this lecture this, this morning. Um, so focusing on BGCSE chemistry, there is organic chemistry, biochemistry, physical chemistry, and theoretical chemistry. And chemistry is basically not, all of those chemistry not in a nutshell. Let me just do a surface level view of those things. So it's very, it's very basic chemistry. So organic chemistry is a study of hydrocarbons focusing on their reactivity, structure, mechanism, and the theories associated with those reactions. So uh, there are five key ideas that you were exposed to in BGCSE chemistry. Chemistry fundamentals, the mole concept, acids and bases, energy and speed changes, and applications of other types of chemistry. A core idea that you were introduced to is that matter is made of particles ranging from atoms to ions. These particles are arranged differently in solids, liquids, and gases. And when heat or energy is applied, phase changes also can occur. So let's keep this in context. The particulate nature of matter is that matter is made up of particles. These particles range from atoms to molecules to ions. These particles can vibrate 
and move and eventually the distances between the particles changes and that affects the physical state resulting in phase changes. So the elastic collisions are the consequence. Let's talk about elastic collisions. So this is tied into something we learned in VGCSE chemistry or this is tied into the kinetic molecular theory, which is a very important concept to understand. So elastic collisions which occur ideally with particles when they contact each other and they result in the conservation of momentum or that momentum is conserved. The final momentum is equal to the initial momentum. Um, it's almost like two good basketballs hitting each other. The elastic collisions are the consequence of applied stress or energetic transfer from or between particles. Elastic collisions occur ideally between particles and this is a consequence of kinetic molecular theory. Okay, so let's continue on. Um, with that in mind, let's talk about um, temperature. Temperature can be expressed as the average kinetic energy of a group of particles, atoms, molecules, or ions at a physical state. Temperature can be related to kinetic molecular theory, energy, and motion. The previous statement is true. Since kinetic energy increases occur at the same time, with motion and that ideally results in increases of thermal energy so let's keep going diffusion so these are all tenets of kinetic molecular theory diffusion can be explained as the movement of particles down a gradient without external input of energy the opposite of active transport this is a consequence of the kinetic molecular theory in that particles are in constant rapid motion interacting with elastic collisions Diffusion is a physical state. Is diffusion is physical state and temperature dependent. Diffusion is the movement of particles from high concentration to low concentration, or basically down a concentration gradient. Diffusion is dependent on the physical state of the substance and the temperature at which the substance is at. Okay. So in fact. That is a fact that solids, liquids, and gases are made up of particles, and each phase has a different arrangement of particles. Solids are closely packed in structures that absorb vibration, shocks, and transfer heat uniformly. However, a liquid has more interparticle distance that allows for movement and transfer of energy. These are ideal situations. Also, gases have far greater distances between their particles. Phase changes that are with the physical states occur with the bonding arrangements of the substance. Uh, phase changes, one more time, the phase changes that occur, uh, they occur while the bonding arrangements of the substance remain the same. So when you have a phase change, no intramolecular bonding has changed. Intermolecular bonding may have changed, but intramolecular bonding has not changed. Melting points and freezing points are pressure dependent and occur at a specific temperature and a specific pressure. Liquefaction and condensation are both phase transitions that occur between gas and liquid states. However, liquefaction involves direct transition from a gas to a liquid. However, condensation involves transition of a gas to a liquid or a vapor. 
to a liquid. So condensation is like a wider reaching term. So we discussed these already. Now let's discuss some of these key players, big players in um, big players in uh, atomic theory. There were several key players in the development of atomic theory. First was Democritus. He provided the ideas associated with the substances being composed of atoms, and these ideas originated with Eusebius. Second was Dalton. He provided the historical and descriptive framework for atomism, noting ideas mentioned earlier. Add to this were Boltzmann, who provided a probability. Boltzmann, who provided probability framework for atomic kinetic energy. His work ultimately helped establish the relationship between kinetic energy and temperature, which relates as the average kinetic energy. After was Ernest Rutherford and his alpha particle gold foil experiment, which provided evidence that supported the existence of nucleons. Nucleons, you have your protons and neutrons, that's a nucleon. Um, in the sense of nucleons. Um, nucleons are referring to your protons and neutrons, those things in the nucleus. Um, Following this was the work which led to the confirmation of the existence of the subatomic particle, um, i.e. the electron. Moreover, was the work of James Chadwick. So following this was the work of J.J. Thompson, which led to the confirmation of the existence of the subatomic particle, the electron. So a nucleon could be a proton or a neutron. Um, moreover, was the work of James Chadwick, whose work helped confirm the existence of the proton. Along with these pioneers was the work of Niels Bohr, and his model we will discuss this semester, from which we obtained the Bohr model. Additionally, it is noted that Gilbert and Lewis aided in providing a noting system for electrons and their atoms, which as time progressed, added to the toolkit of organic chemists in describing mechanisms. However, it is established that the position and momentum of an electron cannot be determined with equal accuracy. And that's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So these things are foundational. I'm not going into all of that. Um, feel free to go over your BCSC notes. Um, feel free to go over your BCSC notes. Let's see. Okay. Let's actually, you know what? Let's just go over these things and go over the concepts, the foundational parts that occurred in the BCSC curriculum that are very relevant to what we'll discuss this semester. A bond is an attractive force between nucleons and electrons. Nucleons can be protons or neutrons. Um, bonds can be dative in which the pair of electrons come from one element or covalent or ionic. Covalent bonds occur between non-metals Ionic bonds occur between non-metals and metals. The ionic bond occurs between metals and non-metals. For example, potassium chloride and cesium chloride. Also, the covalent bond occurs between non-metals. So, ionic bond occurs between metals and non-metals. Covalent bonds occur between non-metals. Carbon monoxide, a product of incomplete combustion, has covalent bonds and dinitrogen monoxide. N2O, laughing gas, has covalent bonds. Bonding exists on a spectrum, but for the, for, for the BGCSC, bonds were set categories. So 
especially covalent bonds. But in reality, covalent bonds exist on a spectrum in which you could have polar covalent or non-polar covalent bonds. So this is an example of a Lewis structure. You can draw an example of a strike of metallic bonding. Now let's talk about the concept of the mole involves a chemistry, chemistry analog of the dozen. So it's almost like describing, let's say something, a mole or something is almost like saying a dozen or something. But then the numerically they're not the same, but what you're trying to do is name a group of items or a number of items using one word. So a mole means you have 6.02 times 10 to the 23 somethings or particles or atoms or, or whatever the unit that you're looking at. Unit of substance you're looking at. This is typically how you did your stoichiometry calculations. Given mass of reactant over one times one molar of over the mass of the element times the molar ratio times elemental mass of product over one, and then you get your mass of your product. Molar mass is the mass of one mole of a compound. It is important since it is used in dimensional analysis and stoichiometric calculations. Also, the empirical formula is the simplest representation of a molecule or compound. And the molecular formula is a common representation of a molecule. Given mass times one mole of a molar mass gives you a designated number of moles. The number of moles, designated number of moles over the lowest number of moles equals empirical formula. Molecular formula is given mass over empirical formula mass and that gives you a scale factor. The scale factor times the empirical formula gives you your molecular formula. It's, remember, it's important to remember that one mole of a gas is RTP versus STP. RTP 25 liters per mole. Um, a standard, uh, it's a standard uh, RTP, uh, room temperature and pressure, in which you have 20. This is the volume a gas occupies. An RTP 24 liters per mole temperature is going to be. Um, Temperature is going to be zero degrees Celsius. Pressure is going to be one atmosphere. Standard temperature is 25 degrees Celsius. Standard uh, pressure, one atmosphere. And standard temperature and pressure, the gas occupies 22.4 liters per mole in terms of volume. Okay, so Dmitry Mendeleev, what did he do? He helped to organize the table and from this organization of the table of elements, um, he organized it into periods. We know that the period number refers to the number of electron shells and the group number, top of the columns, refers to the valency of the elements in the respective column. Okay. In the table, you have nine big ideas. Group one is alkaline metals, like lithium. Group two is alkaline earth metals, like magnesium. The middle section of the table is transition metals, followed by group three, four, five, six, which the elements with different properties. Group 7 is halogens like fluorine, also group 8, also known as group 0 is noble gases. A note on solubility. Now we could go into all of this. This is not completely relevant to what y'all will be doing this semester, so we will not discuss it. Um, the valency of an element is the amount of electrons an element will lose, gain or share in order to become stable and achieve a ground state noble gas configuration. This idea is important because it is the basis of chemical reactivity and it influences the formation of bonds. It is relevant since it is in the periodic table. It can be obtained from the main four main group elements in the group number. 
So when you're writing formulas for ionic compounds or for polyatomic ions or ionic compounds, consider these general rules. Write the symbol, write the valency, exchange the valency for notation purposes, and write the formula with the exchange valency as the subscript. Bam. Extra information on naming and radicals. Naming varies depending on the class of compounds. For example, ionic compounds or organic compounds. You also have radicals, which are ions with unpaired electrons. For example, a chloride radical. We're not going into all of that. That's for organic chemistry, in which you have singlet, doublet, or triplet. We're going to talk about that. This, we're going to talk about those that, that type of notation, radical notation. But let's get back to what's relevant to us. You have your conservation laws. It's important to know those. You have the different definitions, and I hinted at this when I decided introducing acid-based uh, ideas. You have, for the BGCSC, the most common definition was the Arrhenius definition, in which you have a base acid-producing hydrogen ions in water and a base-producing hydroxide ions in water. However, in for many things, even in organic chemistry, we tend to look at the Bronsted-Dory definition, in which an acid produces protons and a base accepts protons. There's also the Lewis definition that you will also look at in organic chemistry, which states that the acid accepts electrons and the base releases electrons. However, as stated earlier, the Arrhenius definitions were used in high school. Bronsted would typically be used in general chemistry, and Lewis definition and Bronsted would be used in organic chemistry. The strength of an acid or base is directly proportional to how much of it ionizes in solution. The strains can be measured using the pH scale, which is a logarithmic scale. Acids tend to have approximately low pH um, values. Neutral occurs, so low pH values 0 to 6.5. Neutral occurs at 6.9 to 7.5, and basic is from 7.5 to 14. These are approximate ranges. Um, in terms of indicators and neutralization, actions um this stuff it's relevant but not relevant to you all this semester later on we will discuss these things if if you take general chemistry 2 you'll discuss this acid-based theory in more detail okay Chatelier's principle. That's for general chemistry two. General chemistry two. Okay. All the things. General chemistry two. Okay. So that. So I just went through some BGCS contests with you. Now let's look at the pocket. This is the pocket that I sent to you. If you turn, this is the PowerPoint presentation in the pocket. If you turn to, if you turn to, turn to page 21 of the pocket, we will start to discuss the questions that I want you to go over. And I'm going to give you the answers to the questions. Um, in the, give you answers to, questions in the video um, I'm gonna let you work through them and we'll give you the answers to the questions in the video typically after lecture I will give you uh, an opportunity to go through the homework 
I will give you the answers to some of the questions in the video. So I will give you the answers to the odd ones, and then you can reason out the even ones. Come and ask me questions. The solids have a blank shape and are not appreciably blank. Answer A, definite, compressible. Answer B, definite, incompressible. Answer C, indefinite, compressible. Answer D, indefinite, incompressible. Answer E, sharp, convertible. If you look at your book, the book that's required, you can find these answers. So don't depend on me to specifically give you the answers, but look in your book and take ownership of your learning. So for number one, the answer is solids have a definite shape and not appreciably compressible. So let's go, let's keep going. We look at number three. If matter is uniform throughout, cannot be separated into other substances by physical processes, but can be decomposed into other substances by chemical processes, is called a blank, a heterogeneous mixture, b element, c homogeneous mixture, d compound, e mixture of elements. Number three is if matter is uniform throughout cannot be separated into other substances by physical processes that can be decomposed into other substances by chemical processes it is called a compound number five the symbol for the element magnesium is a r b b m n c n e d s i E-M-G. Symbol for the element magnesium is... I will let you look at your periodic table for that one. Let's look at number seven. Number seven. A concise verbal statement or mathematical equation that summarizes a broad variety of observations and experiences is called a... A, a law, B, a theory, C, hypothesis, D, experiment, E, test. So number seven, a concise verbal statement or mathematical equation that summarizes a broad variety of observations and experiences is called a law. Number nine, and this is the last one. The SI unit for mass is A, kilogram, B, gram, C, pound, D, Troy ounce E, none of the above. The SI unit for mass is kilogram. So, these are some of the questions I want. I'm giving you a very easy problem set for the first homework so you can really get a booster grade. Moving forward, the problem sets will be at least 20 questions. These will be homework sets. Um, the homework questions will be 10. 
from that, those problem practice problems. I will choose 10 from the 20. I will go through some in lecture. I will go through some in the supplemental videos. I will not go through all. If you have questions, feel free to come to office hours and we can work through them together. Well, thank you again. Once again, this is General Chemistry. And I am so excited. I am very excited to be your professor this semester. I look forward to the things that we will learn. I look forward to how you will grow as a scientist and as a student. Thank you again and best of luck this semester. Good afternoon, students. It is so good to have you for another lecture in general chemistry. So, as I said earlier, this is a supplemental lecture, supplemental to what we will discuss in person, in class lecture. We will be discuss these things. So, let's go on. So. Now, after we've done our review, we've done the review, 
you've practiced the questions i will give you some more practice questions in i saw in the lectures upcoming lecture today however we're going to start to discuss wave particle duality so this is just the overview before we progress towards this topic the broglie's equation lambda equals h over mv where m is mass v is velocity and h is planck's constant so h is planck's constant m is mass v is velocity and lambda is the wavelength the broglie's work louis de broglie's work is applicable to all matter all matter of mass m with velocity v would give rise to characteristic wave like properties hence we have wave particle duality de broglie published his theory and within a few years the wave properties of the electron were demonstrated experimentally through the observation of diffraction of electrons within a crystal look up the davis grimmer experiment so just a quick recap as we progress towards this topic So there are four types of reactions that I want you to keep in mind there are other types other subtypes but I want you to keep these four in mind you have addition reactions in which you have A and B coming together to form a bond between A and B a classic example of that is with a sodium cation and a chloride anion coming together to form sodium chloride you also have decomposition reactions in which A bonded to B decomposes to form A plus B that decompose that decomposition reaction a classic example of that would be the electrolysis of water so the, the electrolysis of water is a classic example of a decomposition reaction then you also have a single displacement reaction which you have a a bonded to b plus c turns to a bonded to c plus b a classic example of that would be an sn2 reaction or a substitution reaction that's bimolecular Fourth, a classic example of a double displacement reaction in which you have A bonded to B plus C bonded to D turning to A bonded to D and C bonded to B. So that's a double displacement because two things are being displaced. A classic example of that is a precipitation reaction. So we said discussed that already. Classic example of addition reactions is formation of an ionic compound decomposition electrolysis of water single displacement reaction and SN2 reaction and a double displacement reaction a precipitation reaction so what we're going to talk about today so the objectives for today an overview of chapter 6 we will discuss the wave nature of light we will learn that light radiant energy or electromagnetic radiation has wave like properties and so is characterized by wavelength frequency and speed point 2 for quantized energy and photons we recognize that many different types of experiments indicate that electromagnetic radiation also has particle like properties and can be described in terms of photons particles of light so photons are another way you could put that as particles of light so 6.3 line spectrum the bohr model we will explore the fact that atoms give off characteristic colors of light line spectra when appropriately stimulated line spectra provide clues about how electrons are arranged in atoms experiments show that electrons exist only at certain energy levels around the nucleus and that energy is involved in moving an electron from one level to another 
The Bohr model of the atom pictures the atom as a miniature solar system with the nucleus of an atom as the sun about which electrons like planets orbit. 6.4 The wave behavior of matter We recognize that matter also has wave-like properties that are manifested at the atomic scale. Because of the fundamental particle-wave duality of matter, it is impossible to determine simultaneously the exact position and the exact motion of an electron in an atom, and this is tied to or based in the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. 6.5 Quantum mechanics and atomic orbitals So these are the topics we will progress to later on, but the main ones, so quantum mechanics and atomic orbitals, representations of orbitals, multi-electrons, many electrons and atoms, um, electron configurations and electron configurations and, and the periodic table. All of those things we'll discuss later on, but the main thing is we want to start discussing the wave particle duality of matter. So let's start talking about electromagnetic waves. Characteristics of electromagnetic waves. Radiant energy has wave characteristics. It consists of electromagnetic waves. Notice that the shorter the wavelength, lambda, the higher the frequency, nu. The wavelength in in the example, it depend, the wavelength in the example seen in the next slide, those wavelengths show that there is very the wavelengths are given description and they show you uh, the length of one the length from one crest to the end and includes the length of the trough. Well, the wavelength basically is the time taken or the length for one cycle of a disturbance. So let's talk about wavelengths in terms of the electromagnetic spectrum. For the electromagnetic spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum ranges from high frequency radiation to gamma rays to X-rays, ultraviolet rays, visible light in which we see colors. Um, Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, um, infrared radiation, microwave radiation, and radio frequency. Now, for those types of radiation, um, the lengths, the wavelengths, or the common common wavelength units for electromagnetic radiation. For example, X-rays is 10 to the minus 10. We measure that in angstroms. For microwaves, we measure those in millimeters. For radio waves, you measure those in kilometers. The wavelengths are very long, very high magnitude. So although the wave model is a description of light, we typically think of light as a wave, several phenomena need to be explained. The emission of light from hot objects, black body radiation, the emission of electrons from metal surfaces, the photoelectric effect, and the emission of light from electronically excited gas atoms. Emission spectra. These are caveats with the wave model of light. However, as we progress, we understand Planck. Um, Planck had a theory. Planck was a scientist. Max Planck. His theory of matter was that matter is always allowed to emit and absorb energy only in whole number multiples of H nu or Planck's constant multiplied by the frequency, and that um, equation is that that constant 
that value that quantum that is equal to the energy of the disturbance such as hv2 h new 2h new 3h new and so forth if the quantity of energy emitted by an atom is 3h new for example we say that three quanta of energy have been emitted so he basically explained and supported the idea that energy or light for example in this particular instance is quantized so i will give you some questions to practice this is a good period a good point in this lecture to pause the lecture and to practice questions on prank's equation which i will provide for you so let's talk about the photoelectric effect these are all key ideas that lead us towards understanding wave particle duality the photoelectric effect when photons of sufficiently high energy strike a metal surface electrons are emitted from the metal the photoelectric effect is the basis of the photocell and as seen in the diagram in which you have an evacuated chamber radiant energy hitting the metal surface electrons striking the positive terminal and it's picked up by a voltage source that has an indicator to it now spectra a continuous spectrum is produced for example with visible light through the use of a prism when light passes through a slit and then goes through a prism we see a spectrum a continuous spectrum of light so a spectrum produced when radiation from such sources is separated into different into its different wavelength components a line spectrum is a spectrum containing radiation of only specific wavelengths a continuous spectrum contains light of all wavelengths a line spectrum is a spectrum containing radiation of only specific wavelengths a continuous spectrum contains light of all wavelengths so let's talk about the bohr model the bohr model was based on three postulates only orbits of certain radii corresponding to certain definite energies are permitted for the electron in a hydrogen atom two an electron in a permitted orbit has specific energy and is in an allowed energy state an electron in an allowed energy state will not radiate energy and therefore will not spiral into the nucleus this is classical of course energy is emitted or absorbed by the electron only as the electron changes from one allowed energy state to another this energy is emitted or absorbed as a photon e equals h nu and these this would be a good point to practice equations on rydberg's equation and here we see an example of rydberg's equation 1 over lambda equals r which is rydberg's constant over 1 over the final uh quantized state of the electron minus one over the initial quantized state and for all those quantized states which are represented by n they are squared however there are limitations and this points to the idea that science is an iterative process in which your theories are constantly evolving some remain and you just add things to them some evolve and they change um, from their fundamental from the fundamental ideas so the Bohr model has limitations it only explains the line spectrum of the hydrogen atom well and it avoids the problem of a negatively charged electron falling into the nucleus so we, we move towards that and we're moving towards the wave behavior of matter 
De Broglie further extended the ideas of Bohr. He postulated about matter's properties if radiant energy could behave in a particle-like way under appropriate conditions. Could the electron be thought of as having wave-like and particle-like properties? So yes, this is a good point to practice De Broglie's. Uh, this is a good point to practice questions on De Broglie's equation. So let's go on to the other segment of the lecture. So as we progress, we're going to go back over these big ideas. Go back over these big ideas, and then we're going to proceed forward with the lecture on uh, quantum chemistry, basics of quantum chemistry. And that falls in line with the wave particle duality. So I'm presenting these ideas in two different formats to reinforce the concepts. So let's go back over our big ideas. All matter is made of atoms, which can be understood with their subatomic particles. One, two, chemical reactions involved in the rearrangement of matter and the atoms that make up the matter, make up that matter, rather. Three, each chemical reaction. Let me view full screen mode. There we go. Each chemical reaction is dependent on rate, equilibrium, atom proximity, and orientation. Four, forces either intramolecular, so bonding, or intermolecular. Explain the properties of the substance. Five, equilibrium rate, ion proximity, and molecular orientation in a chemical reaction are mathematically related. So let's just picture this. Picture this. There are these superheroes who are going to teach us about chemistry, and they will be introducing us to some of the scientists who are on vacation in the Bahamas. So let's just make this story more relevant. They're on vacation in on vacation in Greater Nagua. So, and here you will meet Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Louis de Broglie, Max Planck, Werner Heisenberg, Paul Dirac, and Erwin Schrödinger. So, the name of the scientists in science history are Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Louis de Broglie, Max Planck, Werner Heisenberg, Paul Dirac, and Erwin Schrödinger. These scientists made tremendous contributions to physical chemistry and physics, specifically quantum physics. From Einstein's theory of relativity. Um, which also has some Newtonian basis, and or it started the ideas. Some of the ideas were Newtonian, and the study of the photo study of the photoelectric effect to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. All these ideas are useful in science today. So. So. It's important for us to remember. Important for us to remember some key ideas. However, before we progress any further, I want you to take some time, do a little bit of research, pause the video, do a little bit of research, and study 
what these scientists did. It's easy to go on their Wikipedia page and check them out. These are very useful people to know about. So yeah, it'll be good. This is a good point to pause the video and to check out some of the leading scientists. But let's keep going. Assuming that you did do that. Let's keep going. Quantum mechanics describes the behavior of electrons in atoms. It gives us information to transcribe the electron configuration with the periodic table as an aid. Erwin Schrödinger was a Nobel Prize winning Austrian-Irish physicist who worked on developing key ideas in quantum theory. His equation allows for the calculation of wave functions of a system, of the wave functions of a system as well as dynamic changes in time. When Schrödinger first came up with his equation, it worked well for hydrogen atoms given that there was not that much computational power at that time. As computational power increased and improved, um, people really were able to see the prowess and the utility of Schrodinger's equation for a lot or all atoms. So, Erwin Schrodinger spent most of his life as an academic, winning the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1933, along with Paul Dirac. It said that he was a chair, he was chair of the theoretical physics department at the University of Litzbig. Um, at 25, that's one thing to note. Um, very young academic and very successful in his career. Um, Schrodinger's wave equation discovery in 1926. Wave equation, wave equation discovery occurred in 1926, and it came about from being convinced that atomic spectra should be derived from eigenvalue problems. So here is an example of the non-relativistic version of the Schrodinger's equation. H bar, D partial over partial T, SSI over partial T in with respect or in terms of position and time, H bar squared over 2M, uh, partial squared over partial X squared plus V in respect to position and time multiplied by Xi respect to position and time. So that's an example of the non-relativistic version of the Schrodinger's equation. We don't need to use this equation or know this equation. This is just for you to know, be exposed to it, to see it, to see what this equation is that we find so useful today. Um, the equation provides insights into the energy states of the electrons, known as eigenstates. So Schrodinger's equation. Schrodinger's equation results in many solutions, and each wave function has a corresponding orbital associated with it. The orbital and the respective electrons are specified by four quantum numbers. N, which is the principal quantum number, L, which is the angular quantum number, M sub L, which is the magnetic quantum number, and M sub S, which is the spin quantum number. H psi is equal to E psi, otherwise known as Schrodinger's equation, is typically solved with a hydrogen atom. H, which is a Hamiltonian, um, times psi. Okay, so let's keep going. The principal quantum number is an integer value that describes the overall size and energy of an orbital. The energy associated with the orbital is negative because the electron's energy is lowered by a columbic interactions with the nucleus. Also n, n is the principal quantum number, l is the angular quantum number, m sub l is the magnetic quantum number, 
lambda of s is a spin quantum number. It is important to remember that orbitals have higher energy values and higher integer values rather for the principal quantum number orbitals that have higher integer values for the principal quantum number have energies that are less negative. Moreover, as the principal quantum number increases, energy changes between the subsequent energy levels typically is less. So the angular quantum number or azimuthal quantum number gives us an idea of the angular momentum of the orbital and an understanding of the shape of the orbital. Yeah, it is almost as if it provides a 3D understanding of the probability distribution for the electrons in a particular atom. It can range from 0 up to n minus 1. The angular momentum quantum number is an integer that describes the shape of the orbital values, shape of the orbital, and those values include 0 up to n minus 1. L equals 0 is equivalent to s, L equals 1 represents p, L equals 2 can be designated as d, and L equals 3 can be designated as f, where s, p, d, and f are those orbitals that we're referring to. Those names, those letters actually come from the description sharp, principal, diffuse, and f sharp principle, diffuse, and fundamental. So these are some ideas that I want you to keep in mind. I'm not going to be labeled this lecture a little uh, too long today, but these are some of the ideas I want you to keep in mind as we progress um, throughout the semester. Um, I will discuss further ideas or more ideas later on. However, these are the ideas I want you to keep in mind. Make sure you're practicing questions. Make sure you are getting uh, your time in for your practice because it will be useful and it's very important. Thank you again. Good luck with the semester. Thanks for listening to the podcast series, The New Student Pharmacist where we discuss chemistry and pharmacy, as well as leaders in pharmacy careers, community, and chemistry and pharmacy research. We encourage you to support the work we are doing and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by subscribing for free. We are so glad that you were able to tune in today. Note, the views on the podcast represent those of my guest, and I take care and all the best.